All right, let's get our Bibles. Let's get them out and turn open to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you can find the middle of your Bibles, the Psalms, Proverbs, flip over a few pages, you'll run into Ecclesiastes. Um, as you're flipping there, let me speak to the video. I'm assuming that after a video like that and what Tom Brady had to say, maybe a couple of different trains of thoughts going on inside the heads of you guys in the room. Um, I'm assuming that maybe there are some of us here who go, Tom, um, are you kidding me? Right? That's our response. There has to be more. Like, dude, you're worth 60 million bucks for football, tons of endorsements. Your wife is the most successful, highest paid supermodel in the world. You've got big houses, nice cars, anything you want is yours. Like some of us in the room might be sitting back going, um, Tom, if I had your life, I would never complain, ever. Right? I would never whine. So Tom Brady, suck it up, play football, get over it. Now I'm assuming on the other hand though, there's probably some of us sitting in the room who we hear Tom Brady NFL superstar say something like that. There's got to be more. I've accomplished so much. I have so much, but I can't get my head around this. I just feel like there's got to be more to life than this. Some of us, I think, we hear that and we go, I get it. Like, I get that. Some of us in the room, um, we're doing okay for ourselves, right? Our bank accounts are fine, and we live in a great house, and we drive nice cars, and we're doing okay, and we go out, and we take vacations, and um, we've been successful and we've pulled, all, pulled off a lot in life. But if we were really honest, I would imagine there's some of us in that seat that there are times and seasons of life in which we go, is this really all there is to it? Like, is there really not more to life than all I have and all I've accomplished? Well, today we start a brand new series called Chasing the Wind. And the guy that we're going to be talking about, King Solomon, we're going to talk about him over the next several weeks. And what you're going to find is this. He came to a place in his life where he started wrestling with these same thoughts and these same questions. Is there more to life than this? Is life truly worth living? And I'll tell you a couple things about King Solomon I think is worth knowing. Um, one, this guy, he was the son of the great King David. Uh, you remember David? You can go back and read about him in the Old Testament. Same David that killed Goliath. Uh, Solomon ruled over Israel himself for 40 years. And the Bible says that um, when it came to Solomon, there was no one richer, no one wiser than him. This guy was famous, he was powerful, he had leaders of other nations seek him out because of his wisdom. He had anything he wanted, anytime he wanted it. There was absolutely nothing beyond his reach, yet he was still dissatisfied in life. This was a guy who was looking, again, at all he had, all he had accomplished, and he sat back and observed it all, and he questioned, is life truly worth living? Now, my hope and prayer for this series is this. I pray that we all walk away each week challenged and changed by the insight and answers that Solomon provides to this simple question that I believe so many people in our world today wrestle with, struggle to figure out, and desperately want answers to. And so we're, we're just going to pick up. We're going to start reading Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. And before we start reading, I'm just going to give you a warning, okay? This is a disclaimer. This is a depressing read, okay? Like, probably halfway through, some of us are going to be going, why did I come to church today? Hang in there with me. Um, we'll get to some good stuff at the end. 
This is a depressing read. All right, let's pick up. Let's start reading. Um, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now we'll stop right there. In these first two verses, we start to see the struggle going on inside Solomon's heart and his mind as he's looking out at the world, trying to figure out, is life worth living? What's the purpose? What's the meaning? Where's the satisfaction? And again, remember, wiser, richer than anybody in the world, he's looking at life and looking at the world. Here's his declaration. It's vanity. Or some of your Bibles might use the word meaningless. And the word he actually uses there, the Hebrew word, it's a word called hevel, and he uses it 38 times throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. The literal meaning of that word is vapor or breath, and it simply means this. It means something that vanishes quickly, leaves nothing behind, and offers no satisfaction. Again, you hear, Solomon needs a hug, right? Um, He needs some time on a couch with a therapist He is frustrated at this point. Everything is pointless. Everything is meaningless. Life is vanishing quickly. There's nothing's going to be left of it. And I can't find satisfaction anywhere. This is his declaration. Now, if we keep reading the next verses, we start to figure out why Solomon is seeing his life and the world the way he's seeing it. And we'll keep reading. Pick back up in verse 3. Solomon says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. In these verses, what Solomon's doing is he's painting a very strong picture of monotony. Right? He's comparing life basically to someone running on a treadmill or like a rat running on a wheel. And his declaration that all of life is vain, it's pointless, it's meaningless, it's purposeless, offers no satisfaction, that declaration is based on his observation that nothing in the world ever changes. Nothing ever changes. It always stays the same. Think about what he said. Think about what he said. He said, generations come and they go, right? He said, what's the point in working hard if generations are going to come and go? We're going to work hard, we're going to die, and then we're going to hand everything we work so hard for off to people behind us that we don't know and we don't know what they're going to do with it. That's never going to change, he says. Um, And then he looks at nature, and he goes, the sun. Every day I wake up, the sun rises, and then it sets. The wind blows this way, and it blows that way. It's on the same circuit, same thing every day. The streams, they flow to the ocean. The the water sucked up by clouds. The rain clouds carry the rain back into the, the land, drops the rain back into the streams, flow into the ocean again. And he's painting a picture of just like living in circles. Nothing ever changes. It's always the same. And again, his declaration when he sees this is, this is pointless. It's pointless. Now, I wonder how many of us in the room have struggled with this thought before. Like how many of us have had those days where we'll wake up and we go, I feel like I'm running in circles. I feel like life is so monotonous, so futile, 
It's the same thing all the time. I don't feel satisfied. What's the purpose of all this? Like, how many of us have been there before? I mean, think about it. What is life for most of us? Life is this, isn't it, for most of us? Don't we usually set our alarm clock for the same time every day? We wake up, we eat breakfast, we brush our teeth, we get in the shower, we go to work, we do the same job we did the day before, doing the same stuff we did the day before. Um, We come home, we exercise, but probably not, right? Um, We eat dinner with a family, we kiss our kids goodnight, put them to bed, you know, spend an hour or two watching TV or reading, and then we go to sleep and we do it again all the next day. The, The reality for us is that For most of us, nothing ever changes from day to day, right? It is the same. And Solomon, what he's doing is this. He's observing this and going, what is the point of this? I feel like a rat on a wheel. This is so monotonous. And I can't find any satisfaction in living that way is what Solomon is saying. Um, He keeps going. Gets more depressing. All right, just so you know. We'll pick back up in verse 8. Solomon says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. So the next thing we see is this. Solomon's looking at life. It's pointless. It's meaningless. I can't find satisfaction because there's nothing new out there. Absolutely nothing new. Everything is the same. It never changes. There's nothing new to find any kind of satisfaction, joy, purpose, or meaning in. Now, maybe you hear that and you're the type of person that you would argue and you would go, I think there's new things popping up all the time. Like, look at technology. Look at entertainment. Um, Look at the medical field, right? Those are new things. And again, Solomon, wisest guy that's ever lived on the face of the earth, so I think he probably took those arguments into consideration before he wrote this, here's what we've got to understand about this passage and what Solomon's truly trying to get at. What he's trying to get at is this, is every generation that comes onto the earth, Solomon's point is they're obsessed with trying to find happiness and joy and satisfaction and meaning in what appears to be new. Solomon's trying to tell us the pursuit of new, that's an old pursuit. Every generation pursues new. And in reality, everything that's put in front of generation that wants new, it's really old stuff just kind of recreated to try and help that new generation find happiness in what appears to be new. This is what he's trying to tell us. Now listen, isn't it true that we live in a culture in which we can identify with what he's trying to get at? I mean, you don't have to watch TV very long or open a magazine or read many pages before you find advertisement and marketing telling us if you just get the latest, the greatest, the best, the newest, you're going to be way happier than you are with that old thing you have, right? I mean, this is how people make money off of us. They convince us there is happiness to be found in what is new. And so we, we chase after those things. Now, um, I'll give you some examples, And none of these things are inherently bad in themselves. I just want to give you some examples of what this looks like for us. Uh, I think we do this with our homes. My wife and I, we live in the same home that we've lived in uh, for the past five years. First house we ever bought. And you know what's funny is the house, I mean, it's six years old. still pretty new. But we have conversations all the time about what the next new house is going to look like. You guys do that? I mean, and our conversations are, man, we should get a basement next time. 
uh, wish our bedrooms were a little bigger. Maybe in the next house, we should have the laundry room upstairs instead of downstairs. And we're obsessed with this new one. We thought when we got that new house, we're going to be set for a while. And then a year later, we're going, man, I wish we could change some stuff. Um, We do it with cars, right? I mean, we got guys in the car business here today with us, and they can tell you, man, new is where it's at, right? It's new. And and listen, if you've ever bought a new car, I've had new cars, it's awesome until six months later, the new car smell is gone. It smells like your gym bag. It's shaking weird, right? And then you're going, man, if I could just have the new one. They just came out with this 2013. I think I'd feel better again. Um, This is why Apple can come out with a brand new iPod, iPad, iPhone every year and sell out of every single one of them they create. Right? It's because we're obsessed with new. And there's something inside of us, inside a lot of us, not all of us, but inside a lot of us that believes that if I can just have new, I'll be happy, I'll be satisfied. But according to Solomon, it's just not true. And he's observing that reality of... That's temporary stuff. It provides temporary happiness, temporary satisfaction. This is meaningless. It's meaningless. Um, We keep going, and we find one of the most depressing verses in this whole book, I think, and definitely the most depressing verse in this first chapter. In verse 11, look at what Solomon says. He says, There's no remembrance of former things, or in some translations, things is also translated people. So there's no remembrance of former things or people, nor will, will there be any remembrance of later things or people yet to be among those who come after. Let me tell you basically what Solomon's saying in this verse. Um, he's saying all of us are going to die one day and no one's going to remember our names. You're going to work hard your whole life and accomplish so much and one day your life's going to be over and no one is going to know you existed. This is what Solomon's saying. And he's looking at that and going, I don't know if I can handle that reality. Now, for those of us in the room that would go, whatever, dude, Solomon doesn't know me, right? I'm going to make a name for myself. People are going to remember me. Um, Let me just help us. And I hope that's true of you. That'd be awesome. And we'll all say we knew you, okay? Um, But for the majority of us, let me bring us back to reality really quickly, okay? Let's do an exercise together. How many of us in the room know our great-grandfather's name? How many of us? Raise your hand if you know it. A lot of us. How about your great-great-grandfather's name? Okay, the room just thinned out a whole lot. Um, What about your great-great-great-grandfather's name? You know his name? I see like half a hand. Like somebody's like, I don't know. Was it John or was it Paul? Like trying to figure it out. Here, here, listen, listen. Um, most of us in the room, and, and I don't either, so I'm not busted on you. I don't know my great-great-grandfather's name. Most of us in the room don't even know the names of our relatives are removed just a few generations from us. And the reality of the world we live in is this, is very few people live their lives in such a significant way to leave a lasting impression on the world so that they are remembered. And again, Solomon, what he's doing in verse 11 is he's recognizing that and he's saying to himself, what's the point? No one's going to remember me if I can't change anything, nothing new. I'm going to die and leave all my stuff to the next generation after me. What is the point in living life? It seems futile. It seems meaningless. Now, 
I want to bring this back to the big reason that I believe Solomon viewed the world this way. Why the reason some of us in the room are here this morning and we're struggling with feeling like this. There's a simple reason, yet a huge reason, why Solomon was looking at the world and going, this is pointless, this is futile, there's no satisfaction, gosh, we're just all going to die. There's a reason he's depressed like this. And here's the big overwhelming reason, and maybe this will hit home with some of us in the room. Um, The reason for Solomon viewing the world and life like this is because his view of life, his view of life was very short-sighted. It's very short-sighted. Solomon was the guy who again set out to try and figure out all the answers to life's questions. He wanted to know, where's satisfaction? Where's meaning? Where is purpose? Is life worth living? So you know what he did? Um, He walked out his front door and he started looking around him to try and find those answers. He started living his life very horizontally. He started looking at temporary worldly things, or as things he refers to them, um, he refers to those things as things under the sun. He started looking around him to try and get his answers. And you can go back through this first chapter and see how many times he said, man, I went for things under the sun. I looked for things under heaven, tried to get answers under the sun, and there were no answers to be found. Um, his path and in his struggle to figure this out as he went out into the world, it set him on a couple of different courses, okay? And some of us in the room can probably identify with one of these. As Solomon went out and tried to look to the world to find answers about life, um, on one hand, and, and we'll read about this in verse 17, he took a high road. On the other hand, he took a low road. He said, I applied my heart in verse 17 to know wisdom, and I applied my heart to know madness and folly, and he said, I perceive that this, both of these pursuits, is also a striving after the wind. So the picture is this. I walk out my front door. I want to know about life. I start looking around me for answers. And Solomon went, I tried to be smart about it at first. I tried to be intelligent. I tried to apply philosophy so that I could explain all of life's complexities. And Solomon goes, I got no answers from it. And he said, so, um, on the other hand, I decided to take low road and pursue madness and folly, the opposite. So I just decided, man, it's sin, it's pleasure, I'll do what I want, I'll be my own God, I won't submit to anybody's authority, like, my life is my life, and nobody tells me how to live. And Solomon goes, I got no answers. Both of those things, it was like I was chasing after the wind. It was this pointless pursuit of trying to grab on to something that I could never take hold of. Now listen to me, church. The problem, the problem with being short-sighted like this, the problem with looking to the world for the answers to all of life's questions is that there are no answers to be found here. None. And it's not until Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that Solomon finally starts to realize this. I just want to read you this verse. Some of us Know this, but it's in uh, chapter 3, verse 11. Solomon says, he, speaking of God, he's made everything beautiful in its time, and also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What Solomon realizes in chapter 3 is this, is that God created people with eternity in mind. Listen to me. Let, me. let me just say that again. Solomon comes to the realization that God created all of us, every single individual person, with eternity 
in mind. And according to Solomon, what God did when he created us is he put this sense inside of us that there has to be more to life than what we see around us. Everything here is fleeting. It's temporary. It's here for a little while, and one day it's all going to be gone. But there's something inside of us, again, as people that says, there's got to be more. There's got to be more to this. Solomon says, that's eternity inside your heart, desperately wanting to get out and find answers to the question of what life is truly all about. And the problem is this. The problem is that far too many people who set out like Solomon did to try and find satisfaction and joy and purpose in life, um, what they do is they become a lot more like, Sa- or like Solomon in chapter 1 than Solomon in chapter 3. And what they fail to ever figure out and realize is that sensing inside of them that there has to be more to life is actually their heart desperately longing for God and the eternal purpose he's created them for. So again, you got a lot of people walking around in the world, frustrated, looking for answers. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. But they have absolutely no idea that God is trying to pull them to himself. You want to know why a sensing of there has to be more um, is always there, besides it's just a picture of your eternity set in your heart. Um, God left it there and left those questions unanswered so that you would search for the answers and find him. That's why I did it. So you would search for the answers to life's questions and find all of your answers in him. Now again, for those of us in the room, again, we're like Solomon. Some of us are here and we're like, no, 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 I'll figure life out. I know there's gotta be more. I'll be smart about it. I'll be philosophical about it. I'll be intelligent about it. If the Bible's true, what I know about you today is this. As smart as you may be and as many answers as you might be able to give us all about life, Um, What I know, because the Bible teaches it, there's still something inside of you going, there's got to be more than this. Something is missing. Um, For those of us in the room today, again, like Solomon, our path is I'll figure life out and I'll do my own thing and I'll enjoy and pursue whatever I want to pursue. Even though life may look fun and good for you at the moment, again, because the Bible's true, what I know is going on inside your heart today and right now in this moment is you're going, I know there's got to be more. I know there's got to be more than this. And here's what I want to say to you. No matter what path a person's on, no matter what path you may find yourself on, it's the high road, it is the low road. You're never going to find the answers to what you're looking for about satisfaction and joy and meaning and purpose until you take your eyes off of this temporary world things under the sun and you start looking beyond the sun to eternity. It'll never happen for you. Why? Because God created you with eternity in mind. That's who you are in him. Listen, um, there's one place. There's one place where we find the kind of life that we all need, we all want, the kind of life that we were all created for. There's one place we find satisfaction and joy and purpose in life. And the one place that we find that is in Jesus. That's the place. Um, Jesus himself tells us this in John 10.10. I want you to listen to this verse. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So in the first part of this verse, Jesus kind of gives a job description to us of who our enemy is and what he wants to do in our lives. 
And he says, as people that God's created again for eternity, with that in mind, you need to know that the thief, our enemy, our adversary, Satan himself, his role, his job, what he wants to do to all of us is steal from us, kill us, and destroy us. He wants to rob us of hope. He wants to destroy our purpose. He wants to kill our joy. That's what the enemy wants to do. And church, you know how he does it? It's really easy. Here's how the enemy does it. Here's how he kills us, steals from us, destroys us. He gets us to take our eyes and our focus off of eternal things and instead to place them on very temporary things. And you know what he does? He lies to us. There's a reason the Bible calls Satan the father of lies. He's busy lying to us all the time. He lies to us, and what he tells us is that sensing inside of us that there has to be more to life, there's got to be more to live for than what I see in front of me. Satan lies to us and says, no, 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 that sensing just means you need more of what the world has to offer you. And he tells us that in order to prevent us from seeking satisfaction and joy and purpose in God and in him alone and to continue to trust things that never deliver on their promises when it comes to satisfaction and joy and purpose. Another way he does it is this, and maybe you're the person here this morning that needs to hear this. Um, Another way that Satan steals and kills and destroys us is he lies to us and he tells us that Jesus is the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy us. I'll explain it like this. You ever met that person who you share Jesus with them and they say, I can't follow Jesus, I have to give up too much. That's a person who's believed a lie that the enemy fed them that Jesus wants to steal from you. He wants to kill your joy. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to prevent you from finding satisfaction and meaning and purpose. And if you're here today and you're that person who has truly believed, if I follow Jesus, I've got to give up all this stuff that provides and promises satisfaction and joy and meaning, you have been lied to. You've been lied to. And I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus doesn't take from you. He doesn't steal from you. He doesn't kill you. You know what Jesus does instead? He tells us in the last part of the verse. And listen, Jesus is not a liar. Jesus tells the truth. And Jesus declares, I have come into the world to give people life and to give it to them abundantly. You know what that word abundantly means? It means exceptional. Exceptional. It means remarkable. It means extraordinary. This is the kind of life that Jesus came to bring us, life that is full of purpose and meaning and joy and hope for the future. And the way he provides that kind of life for us, church, it's simple. Through his life, death, and resurrection. And he provides us a way through his life, death, and resurrection to give us a relationship with the eternal God who created us with eternity in mind for eternal purposes. Listen, if you're here today, you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you to come to him today. Quit chasing after the wind. We're all chasing something, right? We're all wanting to find satisfaction and joy in life. Quit chasing after things that will never deliver on their promises and start chasing after him today. He is the answer to all of your questions and all of your needs. And the Bible's clear. It says, listen, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, God will save you. He'll save you to life. He will set you free and you can live in freedom and you can know joy and know purpose and know meaning and start living for eternal things. Listen, it may be a life, and I want to be honest, it may be a life where no one remembers your name. 
But at the end of your life, as you live for Jesus and live for eternity, um, you can rest in peace knowing that your life was about bringing attention to the glory and name of him and him alone. For those of us in the room this morning that would say, I know Jesus, but I still struggle. I still struggle with this whole like satisfaction, purpose, joy thing. Like, James, why do I struggle? And uh, if you're here asking that question, I just want to ask you a question. Okay, here's my question for you. Where is your focus as you live life every day? Like, what do you get out of bed for? Maybe that's a good way to ask it. Do you get out of bed just to do a job and make some money and live your life? And, or do you get out of bed every day knowing, God, put me here with eternity in mind. And man, I may wake up and I may do the same thing every day and same job and family stuff's the same, um, but I have an opportunity every day I get out of bed to make an eternal impact for the glory and the kingdom of God. My life is full of purpose and full of joy. What do you get out of bed for? Listen to me, if you're struggling, again, I'm going, you gotta get your focus off of things under the sun and you gotta start looking beyond it. And as you look beyond it, I'm convinced that you'll start finding the satisfaction that you so desperately want and heard that Jesus can provide. But you've got to live with the right focus every day. I just want us to close. And if you don't know Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to come to know him. Um, if you know him and, again, you struggle because your focus is just off, I just want to encourage you today to pray and ask God to help you regain the focus you need to live the life he's created you and saved you to live. Jesus is the answer, church. He's the answer. Come to him today. That's the invitation. Um, let's pray together. Father, I just pray in this moment that you would just stir in hearts. For those in the room, God, who don't know you, God, I pray that in this moment you would just make them aware of their need for Jesus. God, through your Holy Spirit, show them their sin. Through your Holy Spirit, God, just make Jesus real to them. God, I just pray you save people today who need that from you. If you are here in the room, there's no magic prayer that saves anyone, but if you need to come to Jesus as God's Savior, Lord, for the very first time, again, the Bible's clear. You believe and confess some things to be true about him. You believe he is God. You believe he died in your place for your sins. You believe he rose from the dead to defeat death and to bring you eternal life. The Bible says if you'll come to him, believe those things, confess those things to be true about him, repent of your sin, and ask God to save you. The promise is he saves you. He gives you eternal life. You walk out of here this morning and he starts to change you from the inside out. He starts to make you a new creation. You walk out of the room this morning with purpose in life. You can start living for eternity knowing that when you close your eyes in death that your eternal life is secure with him. So in your seat, just confess that to him if you need him. Tell him those things. Believe those things. Father God, we pray that you would just continue to work on our hearts. For the people in the room, God, that know you but struggle, set them free today, God. Help us to not be distracted by this world. 
God, we do love you, and we want to make a difference for your kingdom. So God, help us every day to wake up with a right focus, a right mindset, never to settle for things under the sun, but to always look beyond it. We love you. We thank you for loving us, and we pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to close this morning together as a church family by taking communion together. And uh, we're going to start doing this once a month together as a church family, the first Sunday of the month. Um, We're a church that says our mission is to help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Well, here's what we believe. We don't believe that anybody can truly follow Jesus if they don't love Jesus. And we don't believe people can truly love Jesus until they know how much Jesus loves them. So it's simple. So when we come to take communion as a church family, here's what we're doing. We are reflecting on and remembering how much we are loved by God through Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. And so a couple of things. Um, The Bible tells us that we should never take communion in an unworthy manner. We don't take it lightly. This is a big deal, okay? Um, So if there's any unconfessed sin in your life, I would ask you before you ever come up and take this, confess that, repent of it. And know and trust that God loves you and he will cleanse you from unrighteousness as the Bible teaches. Um, For those of us in the room this morning, and maybe you're still trying to figure out where you stand with Jesus. If you don't know him, if you're not a believer, um, we love you and we're glad you're here. And we would never want to exclude you from anything. Um, But the Bible teaches us that this is just for people who believe in Christ, okay? So, man, you hang out, you watch us, just um, relax and we'll get done here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, so what we're going to do now is just let the host team take over. They're going to dismiss us as usual from the middle of the room. Front half of the room, you're going to come up to the front tables, back half to the back tables. And we do want to ask you just to go back to your seats after you've taken it because we're going to close together with a song. So listen, we're, we're going to start in just a minute. You take time before they start dismissing to get your hearts right, confess sin. So we make sure we do this in the right manner, all right? Take your time.